Section number 56 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa McCleskey. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 4, Part 2. When we take a view of the benefits which Klaproth conferred upon chemistry, we must not look so much at the new elementary substances which he discovered, though they must not be forgotten, as at the new analytical methods which he introduced. The precision and neatness and order and regularity with which his analyses were conducted, and the scrupulous fidelity with which everything was faithfully stated as he found it. 1. When a mineral is subjected to analysis, whatever care we take to collect all the constituents and to weigh them without losing any portion whatever, it is generally found that the sum of the constituents obtained fall a little short of the weight of the mineral employed in the analysis. Thus, if we take 100 grains of any mineral and analyze it, the weights of all the constituents obtained added together will rarely make up 100 grains but generally somewhat less, perhaps only 99 or even 98 grains. But some cases occur when the analysis of 100 grains of a mineral gives us constituents that weigh, when added together, more than 100 grains, perhaps 105, or in some rare cases as much as 110. It was the custom with Bergman and other analysts of his time to consider this deficiency or surplus as owing to errors in the analysis and therefore to slur it over in the statement of the analysis, by bringing the weight of the constituents, by calculation, to amount exactly to 100 grains. Klaproth introduced the method of stating the results exactly as he got them. He gives the weight of mineral employed in all of his analyses, and the weight of each constituent extracted. These weights, added together, generally show a loss, varying from 2% to a half percent. This improvement may appear, at first sight, trifling, yet I am persuaded that to it we are indebted for most of the subsequent improvements introduced into analytical chemistry. If the loss sustained was too great, it was obvious either that the analysis had been badly performed, or that the mineral contains some constituent which had been overlooked and not obtained. This laid him under the necessity of repeating the analysis, and if the loss continued, he naturally looked out for some constituent which his analysis had not enabled him to obtain. It was in this way that he discovered the presence of potash in minerals, and Dr. Kennedy afterwards, by following out his processes, discovered soda as a constituent. It was in this way that water, phosphoric acid, arsenic acid, fluoric acid, boracic acid, etc., were also found to exist as constituents in various mineral bodies which, but for the accurate mode of notation introduced by Klaproth, would have been overlooked and neglected. 2. When Klaproth first began to analyze mineral bodies, he found it extremely difficult to bring them into a state capable of being dissolved in acids, without which an accurate analysis was impossible. Accordingly, corundum, adamantine spar, and the zircon or hyacinth baffled his attempts for a considerable time and induced him to consider the earth of corundum as of a peculiar nature. He obviated this difficulty by reducing the mineral to an extremely fine powder, and, 
after digesting it in caustic potash lay till all the water was dissipated, raising the temperature and bringing the whole into a state of fusion. This fusion must be performed in a silver crucible. Corundum and every other mineral which had remained insoluble after fusion with an alkaline carbonate was found to yield to this new process. This was an improvement of considerable importance. All those stony minerals which contain a notable proportion of silica in general become soluble after having been kept for some time in a state of ignition with twice their weight of carbonate of soda. At that temperature, the silica of the mineral unites with the soda and the carbonic acid is expelled. But when the quantity of silica is small or when it is totally absent, heating with carbonate of soda does not answer so well. With such minerals, caustic potash or soda may be substituted with advantage, and there are some of them that cannot be analyzed without having recourse to that agent. I have succeeded in analyzing corundum and chrysoberyl, neither of which, when pure, contain any silica, by simply heating them in carbonate of soda, but the process does not succeed unless the minerals be reduced to an exceedingly minute powder. 3. When Klaproth discovered potash in the idocrase and in some other minerals, it became obvious that the old mode of rendering minerals soluble in acids by heating them with caustic potash or an alkaline carbonate could answer only for determining the quantity of silica and of earths or oxides which the mineral contained, but that it could not be used when the object was to determine its potash. This led him to substitute carbonate of barytes instead of potash or soda or their carbonates. After having ascertained the quantity of silica and of earths and metallic oxides which the mineral contained, his last process to determine the potash in it was conducted in this way. A portion of the mineral reduced to a fine powder was mixed with four or five times its weight of carbonate of barytes and kept for some time in a platinum crucible in a red heat. By this process, the whole becomes soluble in muriatic acid. The muriatic acid solution is freed from silica and afterwards from barytes and all the earths and oxides which it contains by means of carbonate of ammonia. The liquid, thus freed from everything but the alkali, which is held in solution by the muriatic acid, and the ammonia, used as a precipitant, is evaporated to dryness, and the dry mass, cautiously heated in a platinum crucible till the ammoniacal salts are driven off. Nothing now remains but the potash, or soda, in combination with muriatic acid. The addition of muriate of platinum enables us to determine whether the alkali be potash or soda. If it be potash, it occasions a yellow precipitate, but nothing falls if the alkali be soda. This method of analyzing minerals containing potash or soda is commonly ascribed to Rose. Fesher, in his Elegy of Clapreth, informs us that Clapreth said to him, more than once, that he was not quite sure whether he himself or Rose had the greatest share in bringing this method to a state of perfection. From this, I think it not unlikely that the original suggestion might have been owing to Rose, but that it was Klaproth who first put it to the test of experiment. The objection to this mode of analyzing is the high price of the carbonate of barytes. This is partially obviated by recovering the barytes in the state of carbonate, and this, in general, may be done without much loss. 
Berthier has proposed to substitute oxide of lead for carbonate of barytes. It answers very well, is sufficiently cheap, and does not injure the crucible, provided the oxide of lead be mixed previously with a little nitrate of lead to oxidize any fragments of metallic lead which it may happen to contain. Berthier's mode, therefore, in point of cheapness is preferable to that of Klaproth. It is equally efficacious and equally accurate. There are some other processes which I myself prefer to either of these, because I find them equally easy and still less expensive than either carbonate of barytes or oxide of lead. Davy's method with boracic acid is exceptionable on account of the difficulty of separating the boracic acid completely again. 4. The mode of separating iron and manganese from each other employed by Bergman was so defective that no confidence whatever can be placed in his results. Even the methods suggested by Vauquelin, though better, are still defective. But the process followed by Klaproth is susceptible of very great precision. He has, we shall suppose, the mixture of iron and manganese to be separated from each other in solution in muriatic acid. The first step of the process is to convert the protoxide of iron, should it be in that state, into peroxide. For this purpose, a little nitric acid is added to the solution, and the whole heated for some time. The liquid is now to be rendered as neutral as possible, first by driving off as much of the excess of acid as possible, by concentrating the liquid, and then by completing the neutralization, by adding very dilute ammonia, till no more can be added without occasioning a permanent precipitation. Into the liquid thus neutralized, succinate or benzoate of ammonia is dropped, as long as any precipitate appears. By this mean, the whole peroxide of iron is thrown down in combination with succinic or benzoic acid, while the whole manganese remains in solution. The liquid being filtered, to separate the benzoate of iron, the manganese may now, if nothing else be in the liquid, be thrown down by an alkaline carbonate, or, if the liquid contain magnesia or any other earthy matter, by hydrosulfurate of ammonia or chloride of lime. This process was the contrivance of Galen, but it was made known to the public by Klaproth, who ever after employed it in his analyses. Galen employed succinate of ammonia, but Heisinger afterwards showed that benzoate of ammonia might be substituted without any diminution of the accuracy of the separation. This last salt, being much cheaper than succinate of ammonia, answers better in this country. In Germany, the succinic acid is the cheaper of the two, and therefore the best. 5. But it was not by new processes alone that Klaproth improved the mode of analysis, though they were numerous and important. The improvements in the apparatus contributed not less essentially to the success of his experiments. When he had to do with very hard minerals, he employed a mortar of flint, or rather of agate. This mortar he, in the first place, analyzed to determine exactly the nature of the constituents. He then weighed it. When a very hard body is pounded in such a mortar, a portion of the mortar is rubbed off and mixed with the pounded mineral. What the quantity thus abraded was, he determined by weighing the mortar at the end of the process. The loss of weight gave the portion of the mortar abraded and this portion must be mixed with the pounded mineral. When a hard stone is pounded in an agate mortar, it is scarcely possible to avoid losing a little of it. The best method of proceeding is to mix the matter to be pounded 
previously reduced to a coarse powder in a diamond mortar, with a little water. This both facilitates the trituration and prevents any of the dust from flying away, and not more than a couple of grains of the minerals should be pounded at once. Still, owing to very obvious causes, a little of the mineral is sure to be lost during the pounding. When the process is finished, the whole powder is to be exposed to a red heat in a platinum crucible and weighed. Supposing no loss, the weight should be equal to the quantity of the mineral pounded together with the portion abraded from the mortar. But almost always the weight will be found less than this. Suppose the original weight of the mineral before pounding was A and the quantity abraded from the mortar 1. Then if nothing were lost, the weight should be A plus 1. But we actually find it only B, a quantity less than A plus 1. To determine the weight of matter abraded from the mortar contained in this powder, we say the ratio of A plus 1 to B is proportional to the ratio of 1 to X, the quantity from the mortar in our powder, and X equal B divided by A plus 1. In performing the analysis, Klaproth attended to this quantity, which was silica, and subtracted it. Such minute attention may appear, at first sight, superfluous, but it is not so. In analyzing sapphire, chrysoberyl, and some other very hard minerals, the quantity of silica abraded from the mortar sometimes amounts to 5% of the weight of the mineral. And if we were not to attend to the way in which this silica has been introduced into the powder, we should give an erroneous view of the constitution of the mineral under analysis. All the analyses of chrysoberyl hitherto published give a considerable quantity of silica as a constituent of it. This silica, if really found by the analyst, must have been introduced from the mortar, for pure chrysoberyl contains no silica whatever, but is a definite compound of glucina, alumina, and oxide of iron. When Klaproth operated with fire, he always selected his vessels, whether of earthenware, glass, plumbago, iron, silver, or platinum, upon fixed principles, and showed more distinctly than chemists had previously been aware of what an effect the vessel frequently has upon the result. He also prepared his reagents with great care to ensure their purity, for obtaining several of which in their most perfect state, he invented several efficient methods. It is to the extreme care with which he selected his minerals for analysis, and to the purity of his reagents, and the fitness of his vessels for the objects in view, that the great accuracy of his analyses is to be, in a great measure, ascribed. He must also have possessed considerable dexterity in operating, for when he had in view to determine any particular point with accuracy, his results came, in general, exceedingly near the truth. I may notice, as an example of this, his analysis of sulfate of barites, which was within about one and a half percent of absolute correctness. When we consider the looseness of the data which chemists were then obliged to use, we cannot but be surprised at the smallness of the error. Berzelius, in possession of better data and possessed of much dexterity and a good apparatus, when he analyzed this salt many years afterwards, committed an error of a half percent. Clapra, during a very laborious life, wholly devoted to analytical chemistry, entirely altered the face of mineralogy 
When he began his labors, chemists were not acquainted with the true composition of a single mineral. He analyzed above 200 species, and the greater number of them with so much accuracy that his successors have, in most cases, confirmed the results which he obtained. The analyses least to be depended on are those of minerals which contain both lime and magnesia, for his process for separating lime and magnesia from each other was not a good one. Nor am I sure that he always succeeded completely in separating silica and magnesia from each other. This branch of analysis was first properly elucidated by Mr. Shinovix. 6. Analytical chemistry was, in fact, systematized by Klaproth, and it is by studying his numerous and varied analyses that modern chemists have learned this very essential but somewhat difficult art, and have been able, by means of still more accurate data than he possessed, to bring it to a still greater degree of perfection. But it must not be forgotten that Klaproth was in reality the creator of this art, and that on that account the greatest part of the credit due to the progress that has been made in it belongs to him. It would be invidious to point out the particular analyses which are least exact. Perhaps they ought rather to be ascribed to an unfortunate selection of specimens than to any want of care or skill in the operator. But during his analytical processes, he discovered a variety of new elementary substances which it may be proper to enumerate. In 1789, he examined a mineral called pitchblende and found in it the oxide of a new metal, to which he gave the name of uranium. He determined its characters, reduced it to the metallic state, and described its properties. It was afterwards examined by Richter, Buchholz, Arvidsson, and Berzelius. It was in the same year, 1789, that he published his analysis of the zircon. He showed it to be a compound of silica and a new earth, to which he gave the name of zirconia. He determined the properties of this new earth and showed how it might be separated from other bodies and obtained in a state of purity. It has been since ascertained that it is a metallic oxide, and the metallic basis of it is now distinguished by the name of zirconium. In 1795, he showed that the hyacinth is composed of the same ingredients as the zircon, and that both, in fact, constitute only one species. This last analysis was repeated by Morveau and has been often confirmed by modern analytical chemists. It was in 1795 that he analyzed what was at that time called red shoral, and now titanite. He showed that it was the oxide of a new metallic body, to which he gave the name of titanium. He described the properties of this new body and pointed out its distinctive characters. It must not be omitted, however, that he did not succeed in obtaining oxide of titanium, or titanic acid, as it is now called, in a state of purity. He was not able to separate a quantity of oxide of iron with which it was united and which gave it a reddish color. It was first obtained pure by H. Rose, the son of his friend and pupil, who took so considerable a part in his scientific investigations. Titanium in the metallic state was some years ago discovered by Dr. Wollaston in the slag at the bottom of the iron furnace at Merthyr Tideville in Wales. It is a yellow-colored, brittle, but very hard metal, possessed of considerable beauty, but not yet applied to any useful purpose. 
1797, he examined the menachonite, a black sand from Cornwall, which had been subjected to a chemical analysis by Gregor in 1791, who had extracted from it a new metallic substance, which Kirwan distinguished by the name of menachine. Klaproth ascertained that the new metal of Gregor was the very same as his own titanium, and that menachonite is a compound of titanic acid and oxide of iron. Thus Mr. Gregor had anticipated him in the discovery of titanium, though he was not aware of the circumstance till two years after his own experiments had been published. In the year 1793, he published a comparative set of experiments on the nature of carbonates of barites and strontian, showing that their bases are two different earths, and not the same as had been hitherto supposed in Germany. This was the first publication on strontian which appeared on the continent, and Klaproth seems to have been ignorant of what had already been done on it in Great Britain. At least, he takes no notice of it in his paper, and it was not his character to slur over the labors of other chemists when they were known to him. Strontian was first mentioned as a peculiar earth by Dr. Crawford in his paper on the medicinal properties of the muriate of bariates, published in 1790. The experiments on which he founded his opinions were made, he informs us, by Mr. Cruikshanks. A paper on the same subject by Dr. Hope was read to the Royal Society of Edinburgh in 1793, but they had been begun in 1791. In this paper, Dr. Hope establishes the peculiar characters of strontian and describes its salts with much precision. Klaproth had been again anticipated in his experiments on strontian, but he could not have become aware of this till afterwards, for his own experiments were given to the public before those of Dr. Hope. On the 25th of January, 1798, his paper on the gold ores of Transylvania was read at a meeting of the Academy of Sciences at Berlin. During his analysis of these ores, he detected a new white metal, to which he gave the name of tellurium. Of this metal, he describes the properties and points out its distinguishing characters. These ores had been examined by Miller of Richtenstein in the year 1782, and he had extracted from them a metal which he considered as differing from every other. Not putting full confidence in his own skill, he sent a specimen of his new metal to Bergman, requesting him to examine it and give his opinion respecting its nature. All that Bergman did was to show that the metallic body which he had got was not antimony, to which alone, of all known metals, it bore any resemblance. It might be inferred from this that Miller's metal was new, but the subject was lost sight of till the publication of Klaproth's experiments in 1802 recalled it to the recollection of chemists. Indeed, Klaproth relates all that Miller had done with the most perfect fairness. In the year 1804, he published the analysis of a red-colored mineral from Bosnas in Sweden, which had been at one time confounded with tungsten, but which the Elwarts had shown to contain none of that metal. Klaproth showed that it contained a new substance as one of its constituents, which he considered as a new earth and which he called okroita because it forms colored salts with acids. Two years after, another analysis of the same mineral was published by Berzelius and Heisinger. They considered the new substance which the mineral contained as a metallic oxide, and to the unknown metallic base they gave the name of cerium, 
which has been adopted by chemists in preference to Klaproth's name. The characters of oxide of cerium given by Brasilius and Heisinger agree with those given by Klaproth to Acroita in all the essential circumstances. Of course Klaproth must be considered as the discoverer of this new body. The distinction between earth and metallic oxide is now known to be an imaginary one. All the substances formerly called earths are, in fact, metallic oxides. Besides these new substances, which he detected by his own labors, he repeated the analyses of others and confirmed and extended the discoveries they had made. Thus, when Vauquelin discovered the new earth glucina in the emerald and beryl, he repeated the analysis of these minerals, confirmed the discovery of Vauquelin, and gave a detailed account of the characters and properties of glucina. Gadolin had discovered another new earth in the mineral called gadolinite. This discovery was confirmed by the analysis of Ekberg, who distinguished the new earth by the name of yttria. Klaproth immediately repeated the analysis of the gadolinite, confirmed the results of Ekberg's analysis, and examined and described the properties of yttria. End of section 56